Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Melanie Cheng. Melanie is a writer and a general practitioner. Her debut, the short story collection Australia Day, won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction. Now today, Melanie is joining me to discuss her debut novel, Room for a Stranger. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing and literary culture. And each week we feature an Australian writer and explore their latest work. On the Great Conversations podcast, you get a chance to hear more of those discussions, the things that aren't up on the radio, and you get into the books that you love. Now, as a special treat to celebrate Sydney Writers' Festival, we've got two new episodes this week, along with some special bonus material. So don't miss a thing. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give the show a rating. Your feedback helps other book lovers to find us, and it shares the love of great Australian writing around. Room for a Stranger throws together an unlikely pairing in Melbourne's suburbs. Meg Hughes is feeling every bit of her age, and she does not like where things are heading. When her home in Melbourne suburbs is broken into, she joins a home share program so as to have some company and protection. Andy is studying biomedicine, desperate to conceal the fact that he feels in over his head and just might fail. When his father's cleaning business in Hong Kong begins to struggle financially, Andy must give up his apartment and find cheaper accommodation somewhere. Join me and discover this amazing, heartfelt story, Room for a Stranger. Now, my guest in the studio is Melanie Cheng. Melanie is a writer and general practitioner. Her debut, the short story collection Australia Day, won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction. She's in Sydney for the Sydney Writers' Festival and has a new book, her debut novel, Room for a Stranger, out this month. Welcome to 2SER, Melanie. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming in. I know it's a busy week, so I, I just I feel really fortunate, especially also because of this book. I want to tell people about it. <laughs> now, Meg Hughes is old, and she's feeling every bit of it. When her home in Melbourne suburbs is broken into, she joins a home share program so as to have some company and some protection. Andy is studying biomedicine, desperate to conceal the fact that he feels over his head and that he might even fail. When his father's cleaning business in Hong Kong begins to struggle financially, Andy must give up his apartment and find cheaper accommodation. And so we have, we have room for a stranger. Now, this is a finely observed exploration of the ways that we know, or maybe the ways we fail to know each other. But I want to start with Meg and Andy. Mm-hmm. They are these two completely compelling characters. I found, I found myself so immensely fond, although incredibly frustrated at times at them. They're also representative of, of two groups that are often spoken about, but who typically don't often get a lot of voice in mainstream media. We've got international students, Andy's an international student, and also women past retirement age. Meg is, Meg is someone who appears in medical statistics and is maybe pitched to or talked about as a voter group, but we don't often hear voices was there any sense of trying to open up these these voices in Room for a Stranger? Yeah, well, with the um, short story collection Australia Day, um, that showcased uh, you know a diverse range of characters, mm-hmm. and many of those characters were people who were, as you say, talked about a lot in the media, but that we didn't hear directly from, and. Um, 
So when it came to writing a novel, I knew that I wanted to focus on those type of voices again um, because the landscape of Australia is changing. It's mm. changing all the time. And the ageing population in particular is, you know, increasing. And I think in 2017 it was more than one in seven Australians were aged over 65 and that's only set to increase. Um, and yet they're underrepresented in our kind of popular culture, in our books and film and, and um, TV. Um, and so, yeah, I really wanted to centre my novel around these types of people. It also strikes me that they're a group that even for people who would not consider themselves the type to, and I'm going to use scare quotes liberally here, to, to stereotype or to be racist or do things like that. These are the group, this is, well, two groups that people would have, I think, immediate impressions of, even if they'd never met an international student or had never met uh, a, a person past retirement. You think, I know what an old person's like. Mm. And I, I've seen the media. I know what international students are like. Was there a sense also of breaking down those ideas? Yeah, I think that's where my work as a GP really feeds into my writing um, because I, I, before practicing as a particularly as general practitioner um, and encountering these people and meeting them as fully formed human beings rather than just you know a, a two dimensional type of statistic or character, um, I would have had the same kind of prejudi- prejudices and stereotypes in my mind. But once you actually talk to these people about their lives and have a better sense of, you know, who they are, it's impossible to have those those prejudices and stereotypes anymore. And yeah, that's definitely one of the aims that I had in writing the book. I think, and I'm going to go off script a little bit here, but on a, on a well-loved and well-worn theme for me, that is a power of literature as well. Oh, very much so. Yeah, I I see so many parallels between what I do, you know, in my work at the clinic and in writing, you know, we both are very much, you know, founded on empathy, and both trade in stories. um, And so one feeds into the other. And that's what I love about doing both. Yeah. I want to now think a little bit about strangers, (laughs) and think about knowing how we know, or think we know things. Room for a Stranger, it sets up Meg and Andy. It's almost in this stereotypical kind of odd couple situation. Um, And we naturally, we're drawn to think of them as strangers. When we meet them, they're strangers to each other. You do challenge this conception, though, uh, through their internal feelings, their sense of isolation, and in their relationships, such as, as Andy's feelings about his childhood, about his parents trying to understand them, what that impact has had on him. What does it mean to you, though, to know someone? And and what's, well, we just talked a little bit about stereotypes, but how did you want to challenge uh, our stereotypes about how we know people through Megan Andy? Yeah, I think um, I drew a little bit on a personal experience I had uh, when I was a medical student. I went to the US on a kind of exchange and I stayed in a granny flat at the back of this older couple's place and I just remember how isolated I felt. It was the middle of winter in Virginia in the US. Mm. It was, you know, I was snowed in at, you know, some points. And um, yeah, just being in someone else's territory, 
someone else's home, surrounded by somebody else's things and their memories, it just really enhances your feeling of isolation and loneliness. And that is the situation that Andy finds himself in. Not only he's in, you know, Australia, a different country, speaking a different language, he's actually in a stranger's home. Mm. And that really just magnifies his sense of how different he is and what an outsider he is, I Mm. think. Um, And yet Meg herself, although she is in her familiar place, Mm. having an outsider suddenly live in her home changes it as well for her. So, you know, she doesn't, she can't just go to the kitchen and assume that, you know, she's going to be able to be comfortable and do whatever she likes. It creates this tension in the house. Um, And that was something that I experienced, you know, when I was um, staying with this older couple as well. I was really fascinated, though, with the way you play with knowing. And Mm -hmm. together, they parallel the the fascinating thing. And I want to be so careful here because, as I said, these are finely drawn characters. So the idea of spoilers really comes in the way they evolve. There's... There is no, there is no, uh, you know, reveal that it was the butler at the end. The the reveal is in the way we watch them grow and grow together and grow separately, and as they come to think about each other and think about each other as strangers, they they almost seem to become more intimately involved than with the people that they they want to be drawn closer to in their life. Yeah, um, but that's something that happens quite gradually, almost. Reluctantly, you know, it's not that I would say that Meg and Andy are both naturally introverted um, and it is their preference to stay, you know, in their own rooms and maybe not interact with each other just because of it's scary to do that and it's uncomfortable to do that. Um, And yet because of certain things that happen in the book, they are forced to interact and um, actually those are the moments that they derive a lot of meaning from in the end but um, if it was left entirely up to them I think um, they would probably prefer just to stay stay you know in these kind of silos because just because it's easier and that's what I another thing I see a a little bit in my practice Mm. as well that people are very lonely but and then they're craving other people's company, mm. but they are still afraid to reach out and they're still afraid to take that next step. Um, and, you know, it was really only because Andy's parents couldn't afford to keep him in his apartment anymore mm. that he had to, you know, take up residence in Meg's house. And similarly, Meg, you know, it was only after a, a scary home invasion mm. that she decided to to reluctantly take in a stranger into her home as kind of a bit of security as well. So, yeah, but in the end, it does, um, you know, enhance their sense of what it means to be human. It is so interesting to see them move around each other like this. You you may need to put a trigger warning on the book for introverts. I feel like, <laughs> I feel I feel very much like there are people that are going to just have a have a little bit of a mirror moment um, in there. I know I definitely when when I think about times when I just can't you know face the world. You know, like, do I have to go to the thing? That was that was just baldly there in both Meg and Andy. I wonder though about other barriers because. Meg and Andy, they're both intimate, or through through your words, they're intimate examiners of their own lives. 
but they're also fairly blind to the assumptions and the cultural biases that they bring to their relationship. They, they, I think they, they think they understand each other. They, the stereotypes that we began our conversation with, Meg has, and particularly her friends have about Andy, who is, uh, I think Gillian constantly refers to him as the Chinese student. Yeah. Um, and then Andy in his conversations with his family, even his aunt, who now lives in Geelong, uh, they they sort of re- dismiss her as the old woman. What what are these sort of biases and how do they work as barriers in our relationships? Oh, I think we all have these ideas and the about certain groups of people. Um, it's like an undercurrent to our thinking. You would never say that anything Andy or Meg do uh, rises to the level of sort of abhorrent racism. No. They just sort of think certain things about each other. Yeah, and I think because of the circles that they tended to move in, mm. they've never really had to challenge those assumptions that mm. they've had. Um, it's only now when they've been put into this situation um, where you know those those stereotypes, they're chipping away at those stereotypes and starting to to again see those groups of people rather than being mm. summed up entirely by a demographic, mm. as as they're starting to see each other as individuals on on a much more human level. Mm. Yeah, you play with it so so beautifully, and I have completely forgotten Andy's friend's name, but I I did also. Me. Ming. Ming, that's yeah. right. Um, Andy's reflecting on Ming and Ming's, uh, his, charis- his charisma and also his ability to study, but then he sort of twos and fro's with this idea that Ming has ADHD and that somehow helps him study. And <laughs> as, as he examines his friends, you're exploding this myth that Gillian, I think it's Gillian, brings up about Asian students being so studious and Andy's there freaking out about his exams and examining individually how each of his friends are and aren't conforming, just in the same way that I'm sure any student does and doesn't conform. Yeah, very much so. I mean, there's a scene in the book where, uh, you know, Meg's... Oh, no, it's her friend Anne, Anne who says, um, you know, just assumes that he he must be wanting to do medicine and he's studious. And that um, does Meg's head in. And that does Meg's <laughs> head in, but then it actually turns out to be to be true that mm. that is his ultimate aspiration and she's disappointed mm. um, and Gillian makes the comment oh I hope he's a contemporary dancer just to prove you wrong um, and you know you know I experienced that having been a medical student myself having come from Hong mm. Kong you know on paper I could I, I fit the stereotype as well. I'm not particularly good at sport. I do wear glasses, but I'm wearing contact lenses <laughs> now. Um, but we are more than our stereotypes. You know, mm. in the end, we shouldn't be reducing people to that kind of tick box mm. list of characteristics. Um, and that's what, yeah, I've been trying to do with these characters is to fully flesh them out so that people can actually. If even if they're not from Hong Kong background, can relate to aspects of Andy's character mm. and see themselves in him, see themselves in someone they would have normally thought they were very different from. Yeah, the sporting aptitude thing is just a bloody prison that we've written ourselves into. <laughs> we're also why are we also the capital of knee and shoulder replacements in the world too? <laughs> Couldn't possibly Overrated. be linked. <laughs> 
I want to ask about a particular character. I want to draw you on Andy's father. He he fascinated me. He infuriated me. I loved him. We can't, we're not going to say too much about him because his arc in the story is is very revelatory of where the story goes. He's a very reserved man, or that's how Andy sees him. Mm. And Andy struggles throughout Room for a Stranger to understand his behaviour and the complex reactions that they evoke in him, invoke in Andy. So these these characteristics, they also evoked a range of responses in me as I heard about him through Andy's, Andy's reflections and then met him. And I wondered what you, well, how do you approach characters and how do you give signals and show signals for characters that I'm going to call less than sympathetic? Because I very much found Andy's dad a less than sympathetic character for, for much of my relationship with him. I think because uh, the to- the story is told from Andy's perspective, from the point of, you know, it's mm. Andy and Meg, but um, in terms of the relationship with, with his father, it's from his perspective. Uh, you're As a reader, you're supposed to feel distance mm. from him because that's how Andy feels. Yeah. Andy feels that, um, you know... He, in, a, in many ways, he's still at that point that we all go through with our parents where we put mm. our parents on a pedestal and they, you know, we, we haven't seen them as flawed human characters yet. I think Andy mm. is a little bit still stuck in that and he's very keen just to, to please his father and, um, you know, fulfill his father's expectations of him. Mm. And I think without wanting to generalize that there is a lot of that going on in Hong Kong and in a lot of Chinese cultures. Um, I now work somewhere where I do see a lot of overseas students and the expectations put on them, especially when they're sent overseas to study, are huge. Mm. Um, And there is a misconception sometimes that these students must come from wealthy families. It's not mm. always the case. They, um, their parents may be working double time and funneling all the money into their schooling, and that's just an enormous burden to bear mm. when you're um, studying in a language that's not your native tongue in a, a foreign country and you're isolated. And so, um, it, I, yeah, I think... That was by design, really, that you're se- you're seeing the world through Andy's eyes and he feels this detachment from his father. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why, as a reader, you, you feel that too. Hopefully not throughout the entire book. <laughs> no, because you, you um, do lay enough down that we can, we can see a more nuanced version of who Andy's dad is. Is it, is it ever tempting then to fall into perhaps an expected arc? where you have a less than sympathetic character that you might feel the need to redeem? And I'm not saying anything about what happens to Andy's, ca- Andy's yeah, dad. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I kind of reject that. I, I, don't, I don't like those um, formulaic or mm. uh, um, arcs. I quite like to surprise readers and to, you know, challenge their ideas of of. of of the narrative arc um, and I think I've done that in Room for a Stranger as well. Um, in terms of talking about that parental child relationship there is a scene in in the book where you know Andy's observing what he considers a typical Australian you know mother-child relationship and he he talks about the way a mum 
kisses the top of her toddler's head mm. and like she's inhaling like it. she's inhaling um you know as if she loves him so much she wants mm. to breathe him in and he he kind of wishes that his mum had shown him that kind of level of affection mm. but that's also a huge assumption on Andy's part about either in the nature of Australian mm. parental child relationships too so he's he's learning and making up his judgments as he goes as well mm. um yeah, but I mean, there are, again, feeding into stereotypes, there are some truths to, you know, generally speaking in in Chinese culture, um, you know, there's less overt displays of affection and, and that's something I've experienced firsthand, you know, in my family, we had... Um, you know, my grandmother used to get very anxious when we'd have people who wanted to come and kiss to greet. It used to become a thing that they'd mm. even talk up in the lead up to, a, uh, you know, an overseas visitor coming. Oh, he's going to be kissing us. What are we going to do? You know, it's just not something that's necessarily the done thing. Mm. Um, and so uh, what I wanted to see and explore was how in these families is can affection be shown in other ways? And that's kind of, I guess, that's the beautiful double entendre of the title is is how personally do we make room or make mm. space for, for strangers or people that we might want to keep outside our comfort zone or our barrier? Yeah. Um, I think, well, I don't want to give us any spoilers as well, but there are moments in the book where Andy's father does show his love mm. um, and in a very, very kind of subtle way Mm. Um, and I think those moments are more powerful because they are so rare Mm. and subtle. And so wonderful in what you do is that that we do hang on those moments where connection is made because we also see the the, the characters miss that room, not just Andy and his father but many characters that are trying to create a moment or create some space, missing their moment and then having to wait for the next moment and... Yeah, mm. yeah. And, um, I mean, I think we can all relate to that, you mm. know, those missed opportunities. Um, yeah. I want to ask you, I want to pick up on a thread. So you're, you're here for Sydney Writers Festival and there's a fantastic panel that you've got coming up and you curated your own segment of the festival, which is also awesome. And uh, Smoke and Mirrors, talking about a sense of self. Because Andy and Meg, to me, they, they sort of live polar opposite digital lives, Andy yes. can well imagine that he might not even be noticed if another student took his place. He's sort of, he's he's digitally there but barely present. But for Meg, I, she doesn't really strike me. I mean, Andy had to put up uh, the the uh, picture of her parrot on the internet for her. She's so worried that she doesn't even know if there's going to be anyone to hold her hand when she dies, as she reflects she was there for her parents, for her sister. Do you see our protagonists or your protagonists, are they typical or are they outliers in our sort of connectedly disconnected world? I mean, I guess they're clearly of very different generations. Mm. Um, Andy, he is, he's on social media. He is on his phone a lot. Um, Yeah, Meg, you know, in the book, I comment she can't use a smartphone. Mm. She looks at her um, friend Anne, who's all on the iPad, um, with a little mm. bit of awe, actually, mm. um, because that's not something that she really knows how to do. So in some ways, they are 
typical of the you know generational stereotypes in terms of how good they are with technology. We we also hear um, that refrain though that technology is isolating us. It's so terrible. It's dragging everyone apart because they're all on their phones. But Meg and Andy are staring down the same fate. Yeah, and I think that's true of a lot of social media and you know the internet in general is that it tends to magnify some of these things um, but these things have always existed uh, I, th- I think it's you know individualism which has you know increased our loneliness really mm. um, Again, referring back to my practice, hearing the old Italian patients lament the loss of their local piazzas where they would gather Mm. at dusk to chat in this kind of spontaneous way, you know, that they lost that when they came to Australia. Mm. And, you know, I think we've become even more... um, isolated with some of the technology that we can order food directly to a home. We Mm. don't need to interact with another human being in order Mm. for that to happen. We can really avoid face-to-face interactions quite easily these days. So if that is your... Um, you know, if you are fearful, if you have a lot of social anxiety, then it's become much easier to avoid those uh, encounters. And Mm. is that to our detriment? Mm. Possibly. Again, it's just a matter of um, avoiding that initial fear and um, anxiety, but ultimately, mm. perhaps it, in the long run, it's 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 worse for you because, again, as I mentioned before, a lot of these people are actually craving mm. um, human contact. Yeah. And if you would like to explore a little bit more of, of what that might look like, if you are intrigued, we have we have teased so many moments because watching Andy and Meg's relationship evolve is beautiful, but we can't tell you too much about it. Uh, I'm speaking with Melanie Cheng. She is the author of Room for a Stranger, the book that we have been talking about. Melanie, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and, and indulging all of the, the sort of piercing questions that I have of your two <laughs> wonderful characters. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this great conversation with Melanie Cheng. Melanie's latest novel is Room for a Stranger, and it's out now through text publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. And click subscribe in your podcast app. You get a great new conversation from Great Conversations every week. My name is Andrew Popel, and I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft.